Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Welcome to the first instalment of Two White Men, hosted by myself, Charlie Stewart, and co-hosted with me, Sean Turner. This is the podcast where two white men analyse the goings-on in the world and try to make sense of it, and potentially tackling some issues that many people feel as though they are walking on eggshells when discussing. We're hoping to open up that dialogue and instead of shutting down opinions we may disagree with, but instead looking at where those opinions come from and perhaps showing how they are wrong. So, Sean, I think it's probably fitting uh, that we begin our first episode with a discussion about the current climate of public opinions. Do you think people are scared to talk about these big issues out of fear of being ridiculed for perhaps holding the wrong opinion? Yeah, I think I think it's quite interesting. I suppose as a uh, Twitter's developed particularly, um, and you see the, you know these anonymous trolling accounts that I question whether actually people um, are scared to put those opinions across that they honestly hold, or they just want to test the water still. So I think people are going out of the way to try and sound controversial. Probably uh, they're saying things to you know intentionally inflame a situation. Um, but they don't have the bottle to do it themselves. And actually, I think when I say they don't have the bottle to do it themselves, it's that if you ask them on a human level, they they probably wouldn't believe half of the things that they actually write on the internet. So I think I think what I'm saying really is that I'm attributing a lot of it to the internet and, and the ability to be a keyboard warrior. So do you think... So, for example, I was watching a... Uh, um, an interview recently on YouTube with um, a, quite a prominent YouTuber who does various interviews with um, with people from various backgrounds. Um, and his most recent, uh, one of his most recent ones was chatting with a Trump supporter. And they were talking about how um, the, the, the sort of landscape of conversation around being a Trump supporter has changed from the initial voting period of when Trump was coming into power as to what it is now. And, and, and the Trump supporter was essentially saying that now, since it's become more um, normalised and accepted that Trump is the president, that people who support Trump are less sort of in the closet, so to speak, of their views and they're more willing to speak out. Do you think that is a good thing for sort of public discourse and, you know, the uh, of talking within the confines of, of, of free speech? And do you think those people should be entitled to sort of express how they, how they feel about their country at the, uh, at the time? Yeah, I mean, I suppose it depends. So, so I think, I mean, I'm, you know, we're on the other side of the pond here, so we don't get the full um, immersion into the whole Trump discourse. But I think those people who've come out and are now talking about their support for Trump, I think there's probably a, a couple of categories. So there's the group of people who um, were always firm, staunch believers in Trump, were always going to sing Trump's praises and believe that everything he's ever said is, you know, gospel. But then I think there's the group of people who probably, um, for whatever reason, whether it was they were anti-Hillary or um, they voted because they were unsure or they were anti-establishment, um, and those people who voted for Trump um, weren't quite certain. But now because Trump's got in and because they're being faced with opposing questions, they feel like they need to ratify their own earlier decision and have become more staunch Trump supporters. I think it's the same, similar with Brexit, so... You know, whatever you think about Brexit, clearly the country as a whole didn't have a clue. It was 50-50, um, and I think that's reflected by most people's pub chat in that <laughs> they don't tend to have a lot of information on either side, um, or certainly valuable information. However, they're still willing to defend whichever way they voted to the death, even though there are perfectly reasonable arguments on both sides. So, so I think, yeah, there's two, there's a divide there between people who were always staunch Trump supporters and also those people who are now just being stubborn uh, because they're being called out for voting Trump accidentally or because they weren't quite sure. <laughs> and and do you think that the um, that the particular because something that that concerns me quite a lot currently is the the idea that um, as soon as you as soon as you express an opinion on something that is seen to be a um, big sort of global issue or a big societal problem or, or, or issue, if you if you sort of say th say things that aren't particularly what the status quo is regarding that um, that that 
issue that you are then subject to um, a culture and climate where they're looking for they're looking for someone to blame and someone and there to be some form of downfall from that and um, like there's, there's a whole culture currently that as soon as someone says something that is out of line or that the majority don't agree with that there's automatically like a toxic culture of right okay we want to know what school they're at we want to know what their job is and we want to get them we want to get rid of them from their job we want you know we want to see some public um almost like trial by public execution in a way if if they've said something that is not quite agreeable with what the you know the the, the popular trend is at the moment yeah i mean like so it depends what you mean by the popular trend doesn't it so you talk about the popular trend and you also talk about the majority and i don't think they're necessarily um I don't think they're necessarily the same thing. So I think, you know, in this country, we still have, you know, the widest circulation papers being the Mail and the Sun, and, and they're certainly not the, you know, the hot takes that you see on Twitter. They're not the in vogue opinions, um, particularly when it comes to, you know, snowflake culture or liberation politics. And, and what do you make about that when, when people are sort of saying, any, you know, as soon as someone ob- objects to... Um a criticism that they might get, like, oh, they're a snowflake for feeling a certain way. What do you make of that sort of dynamic? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I suppose there's a thing now where snowflakes are starting to reclaim <laughs> the um, the phrase snowflake um, in a similar way, you know, to the LGBT plus community did with queer and, and you know, other, other liberation communities have done. Not that I identify um, people who have been called snowflakes as being a liberation group. But, you know, in that kind of reclaiming the phrase and the insult, um, I think I think it's been quite funny. I think I think it's it's absurd, and I think there are a few stories you see where people have tweeted about such snowflakes where there's actually any substance. Um, I think people have said, you know, so and so is a snowflake for having this opinion, and actually they haven't researched it. They've read the headline on that mail article. They've you know swallowed the clickbait. Um, and there's often really founded um, reasons for either being upset, being offended, wanting to ban, I put in inverted commas because it rarely is, ban a thing. Um, and actually, I think if these conversations were being had, say, over a pint or they were, you know, in the pub, people would be less inclined to be so aggressive. Because do, do, do you think that there definitely is, a, especially in, in public discourse and, and social media discourse, that... There, there is a quite clear, um, obvious, and quite aggressive um, separation between opposite ends of beliefs. Like you say, and I think quite rightly as well, that um, if two people of opposing views got together in the pub um, and were chatting about their differences, this, the, the, the tone and, and sort of the way in which they were talking about would be very different than if they were talking about on social media because in social media culture specifically there's a very clear uh, and obvious movement that sort of as soon as you see a view you don't agree with and as soon as you see something that is completely opposed to what you believe there's no there's no discussion there's no discussion at all it's just straight away that is wrong shut it down we don't want to hear about it we don't want to, we don't want to talk about the reasons for you believing in such a thing it's just immediately dismissed and not even considered and I think that is a is quite a big problem in addressing the actual issues we face on either side. So sorry, if we I don't know which way you're talking. So if we split the world into snowflakes and gammon. No no Are you <laughs> are you are you talking about the snowflakes shutting down the gammon or the gammon shutting down the snowflakes? No, no, no. no I'm I'm talking I'm talking more generally in terms of um it doesn't have to be a particular ideology, um, right or left or, or whatever it may be. I'm talking about in, uh, uh, of issues in general. Like this could be from the most trivial to the most fundamental. Um, more so, the fact that it, in the current way in which our society seems to be moving, as soon as we see something that we don't agree with, or whatever it may be, we don't even consider the opposing argument. We just instantly go for dismissal and ridicule as a way to nullify any possible, um, you, you know, any possible positives or any possible reasonable. Um, elements of that argument yeah i think i think actually that the technology is is key in this and, and you know through our history technology obviously plays um a really significant part in sociological development and we see it with you know 
retweet and now they've added retweet with comments and often what is retweeted is in these controversial uh, areas of discussion is either a part of a thread or the you know tagline to a thread where someone's tweeted a whole range of opinions and actually had an interesting conversation about something um, but because the retweet that you see on your timeline your news feed your twitter feed is just once you know 140 or 280 character segments of that you read that in the same way that you read the clickbait daily mail headline that's all you take in and you don't take in the rest of the comments the responses to comments um and so then inadvertently perhaps you've shut down debate on a second iteration because you've just retweeted or just read the retweet of one part of a thing you've shared that with your friends you know gone oh i can't believe they said that um and that's not a fair representation of the debate. So also that compiled with the way the algorithms work and not being really boring and computer nerdy because I'm, I'm not, I don't know a thing about computers really. But the way the algorithms work in social media is to adapt to reflect what you click on most. So Facebook and Twitter apps have you know varied to each individual user what they display and literally down to the colours that they have. Um on the apps on your phone so that you're more likely to click on them and spend more time on those apps so they're going to show you things that they think you you know most want to see and it was shown in the last election uh, general election in the uk and um, the guardian did a thing where they put people in other people's uh, social media bubbles and so i think the the medium combined with the algorithms that run what you see through the medium um are actually yeah, hindering that debate and hindering the ability to have open discourse that you might have in the pub. Yeah, no, I definitely, I definitely agree with that. And in a way, I think it's quite. I think the way I've sort of always approached these these issues is um, to come at it from a perspective that I think if you don't allow people to whom clearly have a um, quite drastic opposing view to you to have the same sort of platform that you have i think in a way that's a lot more dangerous because if let's say for example i mean um you and i share the majority of the same opinions and we're of a certain political leaning we're only we're only 20 minutes in (laughs) (laughs) that's not (laughs) prejudged yeah exactly we've got a few more weeks of this to fall out (laughs) i don't know sean's (laughs) ulterior motives behind uh, what he's saying but um Going back, going back to my point, being that um, if you if you shout out the other side and if you illegitimize the other side and sort of give them no platform to hold those beliefs and uh, and to give those opinions, if you don't give them the platform that is fair, in the same way as we have a platform to say what we feel, you're you're forcing those people underground. And that, in my opinion, is where it becomes most dangerous because if you're putting people underground where they're not subject to public ridicule or public questioning on what they believe and it's forced into like an underground movement or a secretive movement, that is, I think, where you get a lot of the problems because you have a rise of a community that feel as though what they're saying is not taken seriously for a start and then also, in a way, they're made to feel special by the fact that they're not listened in the so-called mainstream political media, as is quite a buzzword currently in what's going on. So if you don't give them the same platform that's available to um, to people on the opposite end, talking about left and right here, I, I find and feel that it's quite dangerous to, to, to put those people into the underground where they're not subject to public ridicule, public questioning, public discourse. But simultaneously there's also a time and place for that to happen in terms of when is it plausible to have these people on public platforms yeah i mean all right we've moved on to we moved on to no platforming i suppose and, and who deserves a platform and um but still tied into the free speech discussion yeah no no i no it is it's it's all yeah it's one of the same i mean it's, yeah like, do we do we talk about um, the BBC Farage time or, or question time, as some people call it, mm. um, and the amount of times that Farage has appeared on that, and how disproportional it is to say his representation in Parliament? Um, do we speak about you know Tommy Robinson and 
and the fact that he claims to have no platform while stood on a platform. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there are, there are various, um, for want of a better word, bellends, like like Tommy Robinson, who who claim to have no platform and actually the only reason we know they've claimed it is because they have such an extreme platform yeah. us. So, so the no platform thing yeah I, I think often it's um, often it, it's spoken about without any any truth philosophically I suppose or, or in kind of political philosophy whether, now whether we're you talking should, whether you, yeah, <laughs> your area of expertise <laughs> whether or not you should no platform people um, as a matter of principle I think I think no platform's been blown out of proportion and again it's one of those things where every case is different and when you look at them often if you read into it you go oh, to be fair, that's quite reasonable that. so often no platform has been confused particularly in universities and student unions with people not being invited or being uninvited and it's not to say that we would never provide that person with a platform but equally why why should that person be provided a platform like it's our platform you know, it's it's uh, a member of the NUS, uh, an officer of the NUS said on the BBC years ago when this came up, um, but it was a fair analogy about inviting people to a party and it's saying, you're hosting this party, this is your student union, your party, um, you get to invite who you like, and if people demand to come in, you're quite within your rights to say, no, actually, I just don't want you at this party. Um, and, and, you know, it, there are spaces available for people to go and talk, clearly because the likes of Farage and Robinson get, get platforms um so yeah so the, the no platform thing i'm i'm not fussed about like i i would rather um if you had to go to either extreme i'd rather everybody had a platform but i actually think that this country one of the few things um and it's been upheld by this government to an extent uh legally that we've done right is the laws around freedom of speech and you know so long as you don't incite you know, racial hatred, etc., and, and you know, hatred against other marginalized groups. And so long as you don't incite violence, then you can pretty much say what you like and and not be held to account over it. Um, and it's up to the rest of us who hopefully don't engage in that kind of speech to then go and hold those people to account. Whether they're being driven underground, um, like, is that a bad thing? I suppose. No, but I think I think if if. Let's let's say of a hypothetical that a, a particular group of people, regardless of whatever their fundamental beliefs are, are pushed underground um, and said that they can't speak publicly about what they believe. Do you not feel that that in itself is more dangerous because there's no public awareness of those particular views in the long run of what could what could come from from that sort of suppression could be quite influential in. Um, almost essentially because you're not aware of, of the views in itself uh, and sort of the marginalising in the sense of not allowing them to speak does become more dangerous because you can't sort of monitor in a, in a way in sort of like a big brother state as we probably are. You can't really you can't really quantify, you know, how many people subscribe to that sort of um, to that viewpoint and, and, and the power of that viewpoint that actually has in relative terms of uh, how many people subscribe to it and what they're actually saying. Yeah, and, and, and so part of it comes from education and having also an intelligible debate. Um, and there's no reason why, you know, people say, if you want if you want to split it like that, people in the centre, um, at least in terms of extremist views, couldn't address these views within their own, you know, speeches or publications. But if you want, if you want an example of people shutting things down successfully, and I would say rightly so, if you haven't picked up already, listeners, I am from, um, you know, the Scouse Republic that is Liverpool. And Liverpool has got a long history um, that's very politicised. And last year, Liverpool, uh, it's a 90% white city. It's really, really white. However, um, those other ethnicities that are in the city are really diverse. Um, you know, there are communities from, you know, we've got the oldest Chinatown in Europe, a big Somalian community, big Pakistani community, etc., etc., um, and so Liverpool, while it's predominantly white, had a, a white men's march planned. Not a support of our podcast, but um, <laughs> a different kind of white men's march. Uh, and they were, you know, the Tommy Robinsons, the EDL, um, you know, neo-fascist, neo-Nazi campaigners. Anyway, and they'd organised a march in Liverpool last year. They arrived at Lime Street Station, which is the station into the city, and Scousers turned up en masse 
and stood around the station so as to block the exits. So none of these neo-fascist, neo-Nazis could leave the actual station into the city. They Scousers marched in on them. And actually, um, the neo-Nazis ended up, and this is no comment on the store, hiding behind the shutters of, I think, W.H. Smith, <laughs> just for safety. Um, and like I said, it's not to say W.H. Smith supports neo-Nazism, um, although the price of their meal deals, <laughs> who knows how right wing they can go. Hyperinflation um, of Germany hyperinflation. in the Weimar Republic. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> maybe, maybe well, yeah. And so the, the what they needed was the injection of Nazis. Um, so, <laughs> yeah. So, so there's an example of um, you know a group of fascists turning up, wanting to parade their views and have a platform, which they which are rightly entitled, which they're to. rightly to do. And though they'd applied for police permits to have a protected march, but equally there's an anti-protest which is allowed, and the Scousers turned up and said, you know what, bugger off. We're going to just barricade you in the station. You're not coming out. And it was well broadcasted. So anyone who wanted to know these people's views saw the views because the, the placards and things were taken photographs through in local paper. They made national press. But equally, the community said, Do you know what, we're not accepting that. And so we are not going to allow you this platform. And I think that's the, that's the important thing. And that's the, the sort of point I was getting at is where people should be allowed their views but also they should be subjugated to their views having repercussions or subject to um, reflection by people of the opposing view. And I think that's the, the healthy climate to be in when you have, like you say, you have you allow um, the people who seem to have far, far away um, views from us to have their platform, but also at the same time, as a part of having that platform given to them, they're also fully aware that they are then going to be subjugated to criticism. And I think that is a fair way in which we can go about it. But moving on from from that particular uh, issue in itself, I've had a message in sort of saying that PC culture, so uh, political correctness culture, is destroying our position as the most advanced liberal democracy in the world. It's impossible to have a proper political discussion addressing real issues without being instantly labelled as a racist or Islamophobia, uh, Islamophobic. What do you sort of make on on that sort wow. of question? Um, there's a lot in there. So firstly, um, like I'm really, really happy for the person who's put that in that they can, you know, have their own circle, Jake, that we are apparently the most advanced liberal democracy. Um, just like look to Scandinavia or, you know, um, there are even parts of, like, ancient Egypt that were arguably fairer societies than, than this society. Although perhaps the person's an Egyptologist and, and they could um, they could, could be on me on the knowledge of the Ramesses III um, <laughs> era. So, yeah, so I disagree that we are the most advanced liberal democracy. But, okay, okay but, let's but pretend... Fairly, fairly so, 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 so let's, let's pretend that... Yeah, we're all right. We're not, you we're know, not, you know we we're don't... not Qatar, we're not North exactly. Korea. I mean, let's, come on, let's, let's be realistic about okay. it, that we do allow... Perhaps from being facetious. Yeah. Um, and so the rest of the question, if you... The idea is then that you can't bring up issues for fear of being racist or Islamophobic. And I think that and I think that brings back to the central point that I sort of laid out at the beginning in terms of are people scared to say what they feel in fear of being labelled or something? Because I think labelling is a big issue in our society. Yes. So, right, so, so firstly, um, and I won't, I won't judge the submitter of the question um, on this, but often when people say things, oh, I can't say anything without being called an Islamophobe or an anti-Semite, often that's quite revealing as to what they were trying to say or why they were trying to say it. Um, because, you know, often if you think you're being racist, maybe you are, um, I would suggest. But who am I to define racism because we are two white men in a room? Um, so so the the labelling thing is really interesting and there's, there's a really good TED Talk... Um, I can't remember who gave it, but I will find out and address listeners in the second half of the podcast with the person who gave this TED Talk. Um, and basically, they talk about labelling people as things as opposed to labelling things as things. And so I think there is certainly a, a change in narrative that can be had uh, between, and particularly for allies, you know, straight white men in particular who find themselves... Um, in the sense of the, these arguments because they forced their way in. Um, and as allies, rather than saying you're a racist, you're a sexist, why not change that discourse to have you thought about 
the fact that what you said might be racist or have you thought about what you just said was sexist because as soon as you start labeling people you get into that us and them dichotomy yeah but i also think i also think that in relation to to the to the question of whenever you make a criticism of something that's other than you that you don't subscribe to i do think that it is true that whenever you say something that is out of place or not agreed with by the people who subscribe to you such an issue, you are labelled, in some cases rightly, but also in some cases wrongly, that you are either um, against whatever it is they believe. So the example that was given was Islamophobia. I don't think, in my personal opinion, that if you make a criticism of Islam, that does not make you an Islamophobe by any stretch of the imagination. And I also don't think it makes you a racist either if you're criticising something that is a valid criticism. I mean, I suppose it depends on on, on, on where you want to draw the line with Islamophobia and whether or not... Uh, I suppose criticising Islam uh, could be defined as being Islamophobic, but that wouldn't necessarily be a bad thing. Yeah. Um, yeah, and, I get and, what you mean. And that. obviously that's a dangerous path to tread to say Islamophobia is not a bad thing because mm. obviously mm-hmm. um, as soon as it becomes racist... It is horrendous. Yeah, I think when you when you're when you're when when what you say is done so in a way which is to purposely demonise people and to discriminate, then yes, you're right. That is Islamophobic and that is bad. However, I don't think for you to criticise a religion or some form of ideology, which it is, I don't think that in itself is a bad thing. And that is not that is not discriminating on the individual level. No, I don't discriminate, but it's. Just check yourself, and are you saying Muslims? Are you saying those who follow Islam, or are you saying Islam in in yeah. in, in, in its inherent state? And that and, and, that's, and that goes back to my point about the individual. Like I'm like I <laughs> I'm gonna do, I'm gonna do the classic thing. Say it. I'm say do, it. Say it. Do... We need a buzzer. We need a buzzer <laughs> for this. I can feel it coming. Go on. <laughs> I'm gonna do the exact thing that a racist Go would on. do. I have a Muslim friend. <laughs> oh, there it is. He has a Muslim friend. <laughs> <laughs> That's the exact thing oh. that is usually said. But it is true, and they know. I have said to, said it to them before. I disagree with some of the fundamental principles of their religion. That's not to say that I don't like the person who happens to be a Muslim. It just means that I disagree with the ideology. Do that, they like you? I mean, I, I think so. Um, as far as I'm aware, they like me. Okay. I mean, they invited me over this morning. So, okay. Um, Maybe to educate you. <laughs> to remove those racist bones from your white body. They were, they were reading quite a lot of passages from the Quran, so I was very confused. No, but I do think it's a legitimate, it's a legitimate criticism and it's a legitimate stance to critique. And by the way, um, to, to put it out there for balance... Um, I am as uh, critical as the um, sort of the of Roman Catholic faith as yeah, I would be yeah, yeah, yeah. Of, of all of them. So I don't think that if you come up with a good criticism of the religion, it doesn't mean that you're then criticizing all people who subscribe to it. Because of course, everyone who subscribes to the the faith subscribes to it in different ways. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, I will happily criticize all of the people who subscribe to all religions. Yeah. And I think there is, uh, you know, a future episode probably in religion is shit, um, <laughs> which we don't need to go into. But in, in, I suppose, going back to the question of this being labelled, and it doesn't matter whether it's being sexist or being racist or being Islamophobic, it's this, um, you know, <laughs> white man's issue of, oh, I'm scared to criticise something because I'm going to be labelled. And then I suppose it goes back to the previous question of do these white men then sit in the pub on their own, drink and bitter with Farage and, and just say, oh, we can, you know, bitch about all these liberation groups on our own, but we can't say it outside of this circle. And I, I can see, I can see that thought, but actually, I am yet to meet anybody um, of a different uh, background to me who won't engage in a reasonable conversation about the differences that we have. And, and you know, if you want to be really corny, that whole thing about differences unite us and make us stronger. It's so true if you're just willing to have a reasonable conversation. And again, going back, if we really want to link it all in, going back to that conversation earlier about social media and the internet, as soon as you have a person and you are talking to an individual and it doesn't just turn into, you know, 
um, one white person thinking they're the saviour of all racism and um, those who are oppressed, and one white person thinking that they have to fight the white cause, arguing against each other and actually never engaging with the voices of those <laughs> to whom it matters. You end up with this vitriol on the internet, um, usually, and, and there's no... It doesn't matter. Like, it, two white people are arguing about Islamophobia and neither of them follow the religion of Islam. <laughs> then so what? Like, yeah. And this is often, what I, I think, where the labelling comes from. It's not that common that I've seen on the internet and I've, and I've seen a lot of this kind of stuff. Or at least it's more common, I think, where uh, straight white people label other straight white people as things as opposed to people from those groups having ever been engaged with the conversation. But but also, at the same time, that that... That perspective could lead us along the lines of, okay, well, you can only have a meaningful opinion if you're on a topic, if you're from that particular, um, you know, sort of ethnic background or whatever. Yeah. And I don't think that is that is true because then that means a lot of public discourse becomes relevant to the majority of the people. Do you not? Okay. If you get so what I mean. Can on that. you can you have an opinion on something? If it's not your lived experience, yeah, and I, I think, the yeah, and I think, yeah, that is the question, and I think, on a lot of things, um, you should be able to have an opinion on it because if you if you if you can't articulate an opinion on something or you're not allowed to articulate an opinion on something, um, it leads to a climate by which you could have the sort of wash the hands attitude of oh okay it doesn't affect me therefore i'm not going to engage and that isn't good for the wider movement such as um you know the majority of 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 sort of things that affect our country uh sort of politically or or, or the whole class of okay well i don't really mind who i vote for because it's not really going to affect my life in any sort of way those people that that sort of level of people where it doesn't really matter either way where it goes because they're going to be fine anyway. If you have that attitude, then they sort of disconnect from the actual political movement or agenda. If you if you get what I'm saying, like so I think it's quite important to maintain the fact that even if you're not directly affected by something, that you should be able to one have an opinion and two be able to engage in that discourse in in in, in going with consistency from what we talked about previously. Uh, in whichever way you feel. Right. So, the, so yeah. <laughs> Big question. So can we engage with things um, that we haven't had the lived experience of? Can we talk to people from different communities who would identify differently to us? And then is it okay for us who don't identify into those groups to have opinions on it? <laughs> okay, so going back to the to the question that we left on, Oh yeah, can we talk about other people's lived experiences? Yeah. Um again, this is it's so funny because uh I mean it, it may be I say funny, but it's probably not funny for people for whom this their lived experience. <laughs> so I'm sorry to you know that much vast majority of people. Um So when you talk to people about this, they often go, Ah, oh, why can't I just, you know, use the N word? Why can't I just, you know, call gay people whatever you want to call them? And actually then when you speak to them for a bit or if they speak to a black person or a gay person, they go, oh, yeah, all right, fair. I won't call you it because, yeah, you're all right. Yeah, and yeah, actually yeah, I get yeah. why you'd be upset. So and, do. and again, there's that human element. The lived experience thing, I think most people will have some sort of um, whatever the opposite of privilege is, like unprivileged. Um, so privilege isn't this binary thing where... You are either privileged or not privileged. Um, the world is split in two. And there's also not a grading system on privilege. So um, I think a big problem, for example, in the NUS is where you get into this uh, oppression Olympics. So people would stand up on the stage for people who've seen NUS conferences. I hope for your sake you haven't. But if you have, people stand up on stage and get into this oppression Olympics. And um, they frame everything they say um, regardless of whether it's contextually dependent on whatever oppressions they face now. The closest to not being privileged I would be able to, to uh, categorise myself in is that I was brought up in um, a particularly working-class family. Um, and by particularly, um, what I mean is just a proper povo. So we had no money whatsoever. So shout-out to all the povos. 
But <laughs> I have experienced all of the white privilege and all of the straight male privilege and also um, now being educated to a higher education standard that adds its own privileges. Um, however, when I have heard, say, um, you know, proper toffs at uni talk about their struggles and oh my god this is like so expensive and whatever daddy's gonna have to help me out that has made me feel uncomfortable and made me think do you know what i can't contribute to this conversation now because i'm gonna get laughed at they don't understand me they don't know quite what it's like um and then also people have said other things um where they've gone like you know oh my god you can't afford that and th those kind of things have been said and i've thought wow like you just don't have a clue what it's been like to grow up as me. Yeah. And so if if you extrapolate that, I can't even begin to imagine, um, you know, for people of colour or for LGBT plus or for women people, um, like the trans people as well, you know, what oppression they faced um, where there is obvious stigma against those, those groups. So can we have opinions on those things? Um, yes. Like, of course, everyone can have an opinion on everything. Uh, this, this is my opinion, so it'd be hypocritical for me to say no and continue talking. Um, do we have to expect the people who identify into those groups to accept our opinions or respect them? No, not necessarily, because often you might be talking absolute tribe. Like, I have no idea what it's like to have grown up and be black or gay or trans and, and know what comes with that. So, no, I don't expect to ever offer an opinion on what it's like to be black and have black people then tell me. And no, having a black cousin <laughs> doesn't make my opinion any more legitimate. Although I think in future episodes, we do need to have a buzzer for every time one of us says, I once knew a black person. <laughs> I was related to a woman. My mother was a woman, like, funnily enough. Um, so I know all about women's issues. Um, and yeah, so, so no, we obviously can't expect people... Um, no, to, I... to understand uh, our opinions and accept our opinions and then also there's an extent of why do our opinions even matter then so why do you think that you um, as a white man should have an opinion on on you know women Black people's issues, colors, or, issues. yeah because yeah, so what like it's their, those people's issues to sort them out and so long as your opinion isn't I hate all women of colour yeah. <laughs> or all people of colour or all women then you should just be able to go with the flow on what they dictate they think their groups need yeah yeah no i i agree i agree in what you're um in the in the sort of fundamental level of what you're saying i agree that um we should one be allowed to have opinions on things that don't necessarily affect us but also at the same time um that our obviously because our lived experience is not the same as those people themselves we can't expect to have not necessarily a non-meaningful perspective because what we might say could be meaningful and it could be the fact that we say something that is actually a positive uh, contribution to the movement in which that particular group that we speak um, seeks however i do think the very nature of um of sort of the our species as a whole is the fact that there are going to be clear differences between groups of people and that is just by definition of the yeah, world yeah, in which in we grouping live. And out grouping and, yeah, yeah. and and it, it's not to say that for example to illegitimize other people's um perspectives on things because like you say there there, there is a disconnect between you know Typically, obviously, this isn't a 100% um, guaranteed fact, but typically the people from the South who come to university have more privilege than the people who are in the North. I mean, that's not mutually exclusive. However, their concerns and their um, shortcomings, so to speak, I don't think should be illegitimized because um, of a perspective by which someone else is lesser off because the person who you have from the south doesn't have that same you know that, that that same level so their concerns are of course by definition going to be different to someone who's not from the same class structure background as them but i don't think that that should illegitimize their concerns nor should it heighten the um the the um 
oppositions, so to speak, um, um, terms as well, if you, if, you, if you get what I'm saying. So I think basically the way in which the, the, the way in which um, our society sort of operates is that there, I think there is, a, there is a fear in people being able to say, or but, give opinions. Yeah, but there's a thing. There's also like the the why you asked, like yeah, no, that you know is what I mean, true. like like why you yeah. asked um, about your specific opinion on on black people or women or gay people, whatever it might be, like or you know, disabled people or class or like why you asked, like yeah. you've got it sound clearly if you're not identifying one of those groups in terms of the fact that you have a lot of privilege, so you can use that privilege to those groups advantage you know by asking them what you know how can I help yeah i'm an ally and 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 being an ally to those groups and i think that's the diff- i think that's the, that's the important difference of it's like less of a, um an us and them culture it's more of a like a like, like a we culture like of course of course we um as white men do have some form of privilege and to, to deny that is um you know almost like you know it, there's, there's no sort of backing for that opinion of saying that that's not the case. So what can we do? And I think the, the, the critical thing for me and something that I've always sort of thought is at the individual level, it's not the collective. I'm, I'm very opposed to sort of the um, identity politics, the collectivism. I'm, I, what's important to me is the individual who we're, who we're speaking to what or who you, we're interacting what, with. What do you mean by you're opposed to the the collectivism? I, I don't I don't subscribe to the notion that um, a certain group of people should be treated this way across the across the board, and that's the standard in which we set and how we talk and interact with people. I think I think personally, the way in which we interact with people is at the individual level of how that that particular person is and we react in that sense yeah but so so yeah so so i half agree in that there is there has to be an acknowledgement of intersectionality and so there is nobody who is just black there is nobody who's just a woman and so and like i said before like you know you know to put my violin out there i'm not just a white man i, I have this working class background and and whether, so, so no two people are the same and you know you can go oh well you're black but this or you're working class but this and and this is what i was saying before about how privilege isn't some binary construct where you either are or aren't privileged however to refute that there are things that affect a whole community i think is dangerous because you know to set, as soon as you start talking about how on an individual basis then you are damaging perhaps that argument that, for example, racism affects all people of colour. And then, as a white person, arguably you'll you'll be undermining the power of those people of colour to no. unite against racism. No, of course. I mean, I'm not... I'm not. Obviously, there has to be some form of universal um, parameter by which is the, the basis of what we're going off. Like, of course, obviously when we're talking about issues that don't directly affect us, there is some standard of uh, agreed acceptance of um, of what it may be. So, for example, we all agree that um, racism against a, a particular culture that is not the same as ours is wrong. Like, that's not... That is not a question at the individual level. It's not like okay, this person doesn't deserve racism and this person I mean, does. It is, it is for some people. Yeah, yeah. I know it's for some people, I, but I for agree. the general the minority. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah, so at this at this level, yeah. No, in, ter- yeah. in terms uh, in terms of what I was saying and going back to to the um, to the individual was that there is a defined sort of um, basis by which we then start our discourse. So. The, the 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 basis of talking to or giving an opinion on uh, issues that don't affect us in some of the minority category is that by definition of of engaging that in the the modern sense is that we already agree that this person deserves to be treated equally or whatever it may be, <coughs> and then we give our unique perspective after that. But on the individual, but I think level. I think the step in between, like I said before, is the why do you feel the need to like why do you want to. And this is kind of 
um, so stereotypically privileged thing. I have to have an opinion on this and I have to be listened to with my opinion on this. Because why should you have an opinion on this? I would never, ever go to the gay community and say to them, hey, gays, this is what you should be doing or feeling because I don't have a clue. Yeah. And so, so why, and why also, why would I bother coming up with an opinion that yeah. I feel so important to tell them. No, don't get me wrong. I, I, on on, on that individual on that individual level, and it, it goes back to the to the point of, um, for example, the the point I'm trying to make essentially is this. I'll give the example of abortion with women. I am never going to tell a woman how she should feel or what she should do in regards to her own body and an abortion. Mm-hmm. However. That does not. That does not. I'm not a sexist, <laughs> but no, 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 no. It's definitely, it's definitely not that that scenario. However, that doesn't mean to say that I'm not allowed an opinion on um, the issue itself. Yeah. I mean, seemingly. I mean, not that it's relevant to the discussion, but my yeah. opinion, my my opinion, if if anyone's interested in it, my opinion in regards to this topic is that women should be able to do whatever they want with their bodies, regardless of anything else. If they don't feel that they're ready for a baby or whatever it may be, whatever the whatever the reason for not having the child is, that's down to them. It's their body; they can do whatever they want. I'm not going to be a voice of, and I shouldn't be a voice on legislation regarding that. However. That's not the same as saying that I shouldn't be allowed to say how I feel about the topic itself. It just so happens to be that my opinion on the topic itself would be in the support of those people. Right, and so, it, so yeah. So, so firstly, abortion is a really funny one to choose because people will talk about then um, religion and being involved in that and then whether one's religious or not. I mean, we all know where I probably feel about that. Yeah, because we've got an upcoming episode on religion is shit. So, (laughs) and also, you know, for the sake of argument, I strongly put my uh, stance behind a pro-choice, pro-choice position. But... (laughs) There is, there is, I think abortion is a really complex one for a lot of people on the pro-life side, particularly because, you know, there's that, I mean, I was brought up in a Roman Catholic school. It was a really, you know, it was the school for a cathedral. It was a really strict Catholic upbringing where we were quite explicitly told that abortion is a bad thing. And, and you know, whilst myself and other pupils would question this, it wasn't simple and it was certainly presented to us as a complex case. Now, yes, you can have opinions on that. And yes, you know, it's arbitrary, I suppose, what the issue is, but you can have opinions. It's whether or not, and this is where the no platforming comes in, you use a certain platform and a certain audience to address your opinions. So if I have uh, opinions on, say, um, an issue that affects black people or I'm curious about that issue, I would ask my black friends, hey, tell me more about this what what what's the issue here i can't understand it because i'm coming from a different place to you can you explain this to me if there's that step then i'd be surprised anyway if anybody had a problem whereas if i then erect a stage outside the old bailey and get myself a sound system as tommy robinson does and then preach about how muslims are an issue then that is a very different thing. So, so yes, you can have opinions, and there's no problem again with you going to your Muslim friend and saying, "Hey, I've read this thing about Islam. Um, I have a problem. Can you explain it to me from your perspective?" And then they can explain it, and you go, "Okay, I still have a problem." Yeah, and but- so long as, and so long as, then there's no um, way of them oppressing their opinion on other people. Fine. However, you standing on a stage like Tommy Robinson has, where I don't believe he's ever genuinely engaged in debate with Muslim people and just saying Muslims are the baddies, is obviously a very different use of privilege. Yeah. I mean, mean, regarding it in a sort of personal sense, is that I I feel like, um, especially especially and and probably the most significantly, when we're talking about religion, I feel that, that the doctrines itself that religion offers is available for criticism independently of the individual or individuals who subscribe to the ideology. Like I think you can well and truly, and, and you're in your right mind to do so, to, to criticise religion. And when you're doing it, you're not doing it at the individual level. You're not saying that Muslim, that Christian, that Jew should not feel 
whatever it is or whatever you feel is wrong with the doctrines that it gives, I think you're more than entitled to criticize something that is is written like you're like you're correct to criticize the law that's in written form you know that has its doctrines that has its you know sort of uh ethical ground you're entitled to criticize that as much as you are entitled to criticize religion and that's not that's not criticizing the people themselves but moving on away from that sub- topic because we've been on that for a whole hour now we're going yeah. to. We're going this to... has been. I, th- I think. I think this. This kind of this pilot episode has been a really good uh, intro to where we both stand and the kind of debate. Um, but just for the listeners at home to know, in future the the episodes we've got planned have some you know interesting topics such as religion is shit. Um, <laughs> but also we hope to bring on some some guest speakers and um, we've got a few really interesting ones lined up and also then. Uh, we want to hear from you, the audience, um, and get some listener-submitted questions on these. Um, and hopefully we can surpass our privileges and put these questions through appropriately. But anyway, and we'll have better music. But Charlie, <laughs> what are we going on to? So, th- so, so the next big question, which sort of ties this topic up as a whole, and I think is quite relevant to um, the landscape in which we currently are, what do you think that comedians should be entitled to say what they want without um when when i say here without um scrutiny scrutiny i mean it in the sense of um formal formal criticism and formal punishment i don't mean to say um so can they say what they want without repercussion yeah in terms of like a legal sense and and affecting the day-to-day life people booing yeah i'm not saying people booing or disagreeing with the joke or saying oh okay you're a terrible person because you said that yeah because i think i think that by definition of being a comedian and you saying a joke that you are entitled to and you should expect scrutiny on your jokes so okay uh boring things um no because otherwise hate speakers would just title themselves as comedians and get away with the stuff. Um, no, I have trust, excuse my privilege, because most of them are probably similar to me at this point, but I have trust in our um, judiciary system, at least to the point where I think High Court, Supreme Court, where they would rule on these things, would be able to judge what was hate speech and whatnot. So even if comedians were being, you know, breaking the law, I think we've got quite clear definitions there on that arguably grey areas around say the prevent agenda that the government's come up with and the discussion around whether that whether or not that is islamophobic um it can be delayed for another episode because that is a whole three hours in itself not that these will go on for three hours comedians um frankie boyle gave who's obviously really controversial in some of the things he said where he's you know slagged off katie price's disabled son uh, etc the queen uh yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, when's the next regicide? Like <laughs> Liverpool Labour students, we, you know, Liverpool Labour students, snowflakes. Um, the Queen, gammon, uh, gammon versus snowflake will definitely feature in future episodes. <laughs> I am determined to make gammon versus snowflake. I think. Uh, but Frankie Boyle gave an interview with Richard Osman. I think it was at the Edinburgh Fringe a couple of years ago, and it was just after Jeremy Clarkson had. Um, sang that rhyme eeny meeny miny mo yeah, and he yeah, yeah. said catch the end bomb and yeah, her, yeah. yeah he frankie boyle said that it was really interesting i really i have a lot of time for frankie boyle he said jeremy clarkson got away with this and he was allowed to continue having media personality being on top gear having his columns because what he said had no substance um so the question posed was Frankie Boyle, why are you allowed to say these controversial things and get away, uh, or expect to get away with them, but you can slag off Jeremy Clarkson, and he does get away with them, whereas you get criticism. And the point is that what Jeremy Clarkson said was offensive to a lot of people, um, although the privileged few who determine what is legally offensive, not offensive, and the producers don't care. Whereas what Frankie Boyle says, when he's, you know, making jokes about, say, Katie Price's family life, or whether it's about... Which which is obviously not something I, I would condone necessarily. Um, but whether he's making jokes about, say, uh, bombings in Iraq and stuff, have actual political significance. So whether it's a commentary on the media's portrayal of Katie Price as some sort of icon and celebrity, when actually she's done nothing of worth, whether it's um, the portrayal of the Blair government through satire based around 
you know, Afghani and Iraqi citizens. His point was people would oppress that because it had a meaning to it. Whereas people who make throwaway comments, so Godfrey Bloom, who was a UKIP, uh, a member of the UKIP party, made comments about Bongo Bongo Land when talking about you know people of colour and and you know other obscene obscene comments. He called um, he referred to women as sluts. He said, um, and when asked challenged about this, he said, well obviously it's just because they're an untidy type of creature or something like this, but. People were saying that's obscene, but he was a no one. He didn't really have a huge platform, and also he was saying it with no substance. He didn't mean anything by it. He was just a knob who had, you know, idiotic opinions. So it depends on what the intention is behind the comment. So do you what think the so, is. so? Is context king? Context is king or queen. <laughs> context is definitely the non-gender specific monarch in this case. <laughs> Um, and I, I, and yet, so so can comedians say anything? Um, I think as long as they're not, yes. as long as they're not enticing, as within the law, inciting violence, yeah, within the law, yeah. yeah. And 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 you know, it, one of perhaps the few gifts that uh, capitalist society gives us is that people don't have to buy tickets to their shows, people don't have to buy their DVDs, and if what they're saying is wrong. Then they just won't get the yeah. support, and that this that's the sort of issue that I have is that pretty much what you said was was almost mimicking exactly what I feel is that these people who disagree with what the comedian's saying they don't have to buy the tickets they don't have to listen they don't have to watch there's so many other options that they could choose from as opposed to watching this person, but more moreover that these these comedians like they say things that they feel that they're entitled to say, which they are. And then also they expect, by definition of being a comedian, they expect some form of blowback from what they say. And and what annoys me quite a lot, and which I think which I can't stand, especially in relation to comedy, is the idea that, you know, you have a comedian who's on stage for an hour and a half. You let, let's take an example as Ricky Gervais. Ricky Gervais is on stage for an hour and a half. He is making jokes about the famine. He's joking about AIDS. He's joking about cancer. He's joking about whatever it may be. X, Y, Z subject. You know, everyone is laughing until it comes to their topic that has some relevance to their existence and their lived experience. And then they have an issue. And I think at that point, you lose all credibility as a critique yeah. of that person. Because if you're laughing along to the age jokes, you're laughing along to the cancer jokes, you're laughing along to whatever it may be, and suddenly it comes to your topic, and then you choose to be offended, you lose all credibility, in my opinion. Yeah, I agree. And I think... Yeah, and I think I think there's a dangerous progression here where you can't... I want to make clear that you can't get away with saying things that are bad by excusing them as being that things that are funny. And just because some people find what you've said funny doesn't make it okay to say it doesn't make it right to say it doesn't mean you can't say it but it doesn't make it right to say no no but also it's the it's the the, the target of the joke for example uh, you know yes, a joke and about that's Frankie Boyle's point yeah. is that his target was never Katie Price's disabled son yeah. the jokes he made were in and and I again think they were distasteful and I think they were wrong but his point was that there's a political motivation behind how much of the media Katie Price hogged for having no credible talent or worth to her voice on things that she was being asked about and yet she was also then plugging her media image and his his, his view was that she was abusing her own disabled son um, by using him as a device for further Fame. media yeah. attention um, which which I can get the, the thing about um, you know you don't you don't have to be offensive to be funny so Jimmy Carr I'm not a fan of particularly, you know, Frankie Boyle writes his jokes often as well, which which I just think he's not got a lot of original material. Um, and I'm just thinking, Jimmy Carr, whatever, he's made me laugh. But my favourite comedian of all time, without, you know, a big gap between anyone coming anywhere near second to this person, is Peter Kay. And I am, yeah. Garlic bread. And, yeah, and, <laughs> and whether it's because of my privilege, I am yet to hear anything offensive from Peter Kay in his material. He is, you know, he's he is the most successful comedian this this country's ever produced. The most successful comedian in the world by every measure in terms of filling out stadiums, in terms of ticket sales, in terms of television. Any measure, he's the most successful comedian. 
and he doesn't use any of his material to offend groups or certainly not target groups. Um, there are, you know, perhaps now you'd say his Phoenix Knight sketch was distasteful because he played a disabled person, um, and and that's up to the disabled community to determine. But overall, his message is not an offensive one. It's just purely observational, everyday, funny stuff. But also, I I, f- I find like whether whether I like to admit it or not, or whether people like to admit it, admit it or not, there are things which are inherently taken out of a joke context or taken out of a humorous context that if it was in normal life would be incredibly sad. However, put into a comedic context is funny that we laugh at things that we shouldn't laugh at. And is that is that wrong that we laugh at things that aren't, that should not be funny and are inherently... Go on. A big argument given by Bill Burr, who's an American comedian, for anyone who doesn't know, he says that a lot of the reasons for allowing sort of offensive comedy, so to speak, I mean, obviously you draw the lines where you, you draw your own lines yeah. of where you put offensive being. Uh, which do you allow the, it? Which is probably past the, the long problem, but yeah. Yeah. As in, why is it up to you to fight? Yeah, yeah. 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 But uh, so where, where do you where do you draw the line of like? Look, the, the the big point was given. In fact, this wasn't um, Bill Berry. It was a guy called Jim Norton who hosts uh, XFM in America, as far as I'm aware. I don't know if it's XFM, but he hosts a radio show in America, and he's also a stand-up comedian. And he, he essentially says that um, if a group of people go into a room and, you know, they hold their beliefs that they had from before going into the room, you know, everyone knows that, you know, AIDS is terrible, that 9-11 was horrendous, blah, 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 whatever it may be. We all are aware that that thing is bad and sad. If you go, his, his central point is, if you go into a room and sit down and watch a comedian who is telling jokes about those topics in a way that makes them seem humorous or funny or whatever it may be, you then don't leave the room thinking that those things are in themselves funny. You have the same perception of those things when you leave the room as when you enter the room, yet during the 45 minutes that the comedian was on stage, you were laughing as hard as anyone else about those things, but it doesn't change your perspective of knowing that those things themselves are bad. Yeah, and and I suppose then you have a domino effect or a snowballing effect of um, when you then go and repeat those jokes to your friends, who do they repeat them to, and at what point then does everyone find that joke funny? And... There's also a thing about too soonness. So, uh, people aren't bothered by Monty Python's Spanish Inquisition uh, sketches. People are bothered by jokes about the Holocaust, for example. People aren't bothered about, um, you know, oppressions that the Roman or Ottoman empires uh, upheld. And, and jokes that might be based on them, although my history isn't good enough to form those jokes right now. But I assure you, I have heard jokes about things that went on millennia ago. However, there are significant things in the past few years, so whether it's like the Vietnam War, um, whether it's about actually 9-11, and, and because people within living memory know people who died and those things would find those offensive or distasteful. And so, you know, you, you can play that game of how many years until it's no longer offensive and... And yeah, and it comes down to the the talents of the comedian often to judge the audience. But again, I ask, why why would you make that joke? It's the same as before. Why do you think your opinion is important? Peter Kay's opinion on garlic bread is great, unless you're going to go so far as to say he's appropriating Italian culture. (laughs) I don't even know if garlic bread is Italian. But as long as you're okay with that, his jokes are just inherently funny because they have... You know what? What makes things funny? It's something unexpected, and he just delivers that unexpectedness. Whereas actually, I find you know, the likes of Jimmy Carr and stuff. The only reason those things are unexpected is because they are offensive and taboo. But whereas Peter Kay's things are unexpected, inherently. But do, but does if if you tell a joke about an offensive thing, or if you laugh at a joke about an offensive thing, does that mean? Does that have any relevance to how you feel about the thing in itself? Like, obviously, there's a there's, there's a, like a famous sort of line of argument along this perspective where it's like, is a joke about a bad thing as bad as the bad thing itself? 
Uh, no, I wouldn't say that Monty Python's sketch about the Spanish Inquisition is as bad as the Spanish Inquisition was for the people who faced it. Um, or does it but, make you a bad yes, person for yes, laughing at those things? Yes. You think 100%, it does? Yes, 100%, but it doesn't make you 100% a bad person. So I have, in my time, laughed at jokes that have you know used groups of people who've been oppressed as a punchline. And, and I, you know, over my years, and certainly before, you know, I was rapidly educated on liberation politics and things, and I'd assess my own privilege. Certainly, would have laughed at those things, um, and and what it reveals is my own unconscious biases, my own internal misogyny, my own internal racism, um, and what I would you know forever. Everyone always you know I I am a white man, but I am definitely not a racist. But I'm definitely not a sexist. I've got you know my mother's a woman. My, I've got a black cousin, <laughs> essentially. I'm obviously not these things, but actually, I think. If you're sat in a room, say, full of, uh, you know, if you're sat in a room full of black people and someone makes a joke that's racist against black people, I'd be interested to know how you'd react. Because I, I would also be interested to know how that black audience would react. And if you wouldn't react in the same way as you would react in a room full of white people, then you have to accept there's some sort of internalised racism that you hold. No, I, to, in, in, in all honesty, I, I do, I hadn't thought about it like that. And I do agree in that sense that if you are a, a white man in an audience of, say, black people and a joke is made against black people, you are almost looking at the black person saying, is that funny? Yes. Can I laugh? Yeah, that yeah. type of thing. Give me permission yeah. to laugh. Whereas if you were just in a white audience and that joke was made, you wouldn't even think about it. You would just laugh yes. if you found but it But there funny. are inevitably a handful of black people in that audience who aren't laughing. Yeah, and and there are also going to be black people who say, "Yeah, I don't care that you're laughing about that," and that goes back to the individual question of different people well, yeah, are going to think there's, about there's different privilege. things in different yeah. ways. Yeah, yeah, and again, it depends on the comedian as well. Yeah. So, so there's things where I've seen um, black comics present to a predominantly white audience um, jokes that would arguably be seen as, you know, if a white person had said it, it would be racist against black people, and they've said it on purpose to make the white audience feel awkward. Yeah. But the point is there is there is clearly some sort of internalised racism where we go, there's one thing that's acceptable for a group of white people and one thing that's acceptable for a group of black people. And I'm not saying that anyone is overtly hating on black people, but there's something inside us where we are, you know, defining a privilege between the two groups. And so are we, coming to a close now, are we in agreement in the sense of people and or comedians can say whatever they wish within the confines of the law however they should be they should expect repercussions from what they say in the sense of criticism of the jokes they make or the positions they hold and that is a fair system well i i'd say i think people can say whatever they like within the confines of the law and without the law because then the law will deal with them so i think people can say whatever they like I just think people should never expect a platform. So if you're a racist, you shouldn't be able to turn up and expect to be heard. It's not to say you can't have a platform somewhere, but yeah, and then I think that addresses the whole, you know, people who are offended by racist things, which I would hope be most of our listeners, wouldn't turn up to see that racist person speak. Excellent. Well... Wow. We've gone on for a oh. lot longer than we thought we would on one particular topic. We had four that were in the bag to one talk One hour, about. 14 minutes. So next week, um, who knows what to expect. We don't know what we're going to expect next week. But thank you very much for listening um, to our first ever episode. Um, and we're hoping to build on this and we will improve as we go along. Sean, any final words? Uh, just... Welcome to the White Boys Club. Yeah, <laughs> two white men talking about things from a white perspective. I mean, who would have thought it in this day and age?